Section 6 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 26. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 26. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 6. The Shoemaker and His Two Wives by Elizabeth Oakes Smith. Everybody was pitying Mr. Sampson, the shoemaker of the village of B. Now, gentle reader, you need not guess Brunswick, nor Bethel, nor Bloomfield, nor any other village beginning with a B, for I will assure you beforehand you won't guess right. Nobody knows the identical place beginning with a B except the writer. Well, everybody was pitying the shoemaker, and as he passed daily by my window on his way to his little workshop, I involuntarily drew down my face in token of commiseration, though why I should do it I could not for my life have explained. But everybody said he was an unhappy man, a miserable man, that his wife almost scolded his life out of him, that she was the biggest scold in the country, beat Xantippe of classical memory all hollow, that in her fits of passion, she whisked the poor shoemaker about very much like a West India bamboo in a tropical hurricane. Never was such a scold. Her tongue might be heard the first thing in the morning and the last at night. She was so constantly scolding, she would never take time to die, so the poor shoemaker's misery seemed interminable. All the men were telling how they would manage her if they had her for a wife and when a half-dozen of them collected at a farmer's house, the shoemaker's wife was often the theme, and many were the modes of punishment devised by those who had not the shrew to deal with. It might generally be observed on such occasions that those, who were suspected of being henpecked, now fortified by the numbers present, generally talked most valiantly how they would manage the shoemaker's wife if she belonged to them, now and then casting furtive glances at their bustling good wives present. But it was plain to be seen the women did not relish this theme when discussed by the men. They would talk pathetically of the shoemaker's grievances among themselves, talk eloquently of the misery a man must suffer in being tied to such a termagant. But no sooner did an unlucky husband attempt to harp upon the same string than touch a hornet's nest. All the women were out with palliatives, and warm in the defense of the shoemaker's wife. Every woman had her peculiar trials. Mrs. Sampson, no doubt, had hers as well as others. She had no flesh on her bones and was as yellow as saffron. It was plain she was a sick woman. Mr. Sampson appeared pleasant enough outdoors, but for all that, he might be a tyrant at home. Thus was poor Mrs. Sampson defended in spite of her tongue. But whatever they felt called upon to say in behalf of Mrs. Sampson in the presence of their husbands, their sympathies were actually altogether on the side of Mr. Sampson. Every good wife wreathed her face into the most becoming smile when she accosted Mr. Sampson, merely out of instinctive good nature. Far be it from me to insinuate that it was to contrast with the thin lips and sour visage of his own good wife. Seeing this state of things, I began naturally to study the countenance of the poor man as he passed my window, 
in order to read the lines of care, the furrows of misery, and cringing air of a henpecked man. But, truth to say, no such things were to be seen. He generally passed with a careless, sturdy tread, humming a tune or picking his teeth. As for wrinkles, his hale, good-natured, handsome face looked as if it might bid defiance to them for many a year to come. His bright, open eye looked as if it had never twinkled with anything but good humor, and instead of being the most miserable, I at once sat him down for the happiest man in the village of B. No one bought oftener gingerbread and candy for his children, or new gowns for his wife. When arm in arm they trudged along to meeting on a Sunday, no man seemed more busily to chat with his wife, and no woman looked prouder of her husband. The secret seemed to be in his having good-naturedly accommodated himself to the disposition of his wife, without compromising his own independence. After all, it depends less upon external circumstances than on our own disposition, whether we are happy or miserable in this life. In process of time, the shoemaker's wife died, leaving her husband to follow her to the grave with as many children as followed Mr. Rogers to the stake. And whether that were nine or ten, the reader must determine. Contrary to the expectations of everyone, Mr. Sampson mourned long and truly for his wife. She had been a thrifty housewife and a neat, careful mother, and so used were husband and children to her severe discipline that it was doubtful whether they would know how to act without it. But sorrow, like all other things in the sublunary world, must have an end. The children were growing disorderly, and were losing that tidy appearance that had always characterized them. Nothing in the shoemaker's snug domicile went right. The good housewives in the village of B were busy in making a second match for poor Mr. Sampson, and like prudent women, they all pitched upon one the very antipodes of poor Mrs. Sampson, who was dead and gone. Susan Gowan was mild, good-natured, and smart and all eyes were turned upon her as the future Mrs. Sampson. She was just the right age, had a little property, and all declared he could never do better. And Mr. Sampson, like a reasonable man, believed what everybody said and married her. This time, at least, the neighbors had no reason to complain. The second Mrs. Sampson was a mirror of patience. The neighbors who happened in about mealtime could find no fault with the bread and butter, the last article being thick enough to satisfy the most captious. And as for pie or cake, all declared hers were no mother-in-law pieces. The shoemaker must and would be happy. Months passed away, and if the predictions of the neighbors were to be verified, Mr. Sampson's appearance was somewhat equivocal for a happy man. It was certain that he grew thin, did not whistle or laugh or hum half so often as he used to do. His step was listless, and he seemed to have lost much of that sturdy activity which had formerly distinguished him. The neighbors were completely at a stand. Mrs. Sampson was strictly scrutinized, but nothing could be detected. 
She was patience personified. Meanwhile, the children, accustomed to the severe discipline of their mother, no sooner found themselves subjected to the milder sway of a stepmother, whose right to control them was, to say the least, doubtful, since public opinion has made it such, now burst free from all restraint and reveled in the glorious privilege of doing whatever they had a mind to do. Poor Mrs. Sampson talked and coaxed and wept, and in one or two instances even had the temerity to put a motherless child down cellar, all to no purpose. They were as unmanageable as a parcel of wild colts broken free from the pasture and antic with the first consciousness of freedom. Mr. Sampson could not manage them. That was out of the question. He had never thought of doing it while their mother was alive, and how could he now that she was dead and gone? Among the trials awarded to the patriarch job, it is well, perhaps, that his sex precluded the possibility of his passing the ordeal of a mother-in-law's lot. So thought the second Mrs. Sampson. She had tried everything and now her patience was completely exhausted. One day, just as her husband was coming in to dinner, driven to desperation by the accumulated din of so many ungovernable children, she suddenly armed herself with a handful of hemlock tops and laid them about her on every side, at the same time ordering every child to a seat about the quickest. At this moment her husband entered, and far from flinching, she resolutely told him what she had done and what she meant to do in future, ere she would endure such an intolerable din. Mr. Sampson was at once in fine spirits. His wife had never looked half so handsome before. The children were as whist as mice in a cheese. Mrs. Sampson absolutely kept her word, and though the neighbors pitied the children and talked mournfully of the sorrows of poor Mr. Sampson, from that time he began to gain in flesh and spirits, and became the sturdy, good-natured sort of a man I had formerly known him. The recurrence of the old stimulus in the activity of a wife's tongue had restored the buoyancy to his spirits, and health to his bones. Such being the fact, I thought it best to write his history in the hope that persons witnessing a similar case would suspend their sympathies and reflect that, after all, the husband of a scolding wife may be as happy as that of a good-natured one, and the spirited tones of her voice in scolding may be quite as agreeable to such a husband's ear as the most dulcet notes of the other in trilling a fashionable air. End of section six. Read by Zachary J. in Boise, October twenty third, twenty twenty one.